Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16. And this is God's word for us today. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Will you pray with me? Father, your word is good. And I believe, Lord, I truly believe that right here, you've given us a text that should make us marvel at you and at the Lord Jesus. A text that should make us worship you. A text that should make us glorify you. I pray that that'll come through as we study it today. Again, let the gospel ring true. Let our hearts be in awe. Let us glorify you and have the joy of seeing your glory. And that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. From Matthew chapters 21 through 25, we've seen events of the week known as the Passion Week for the deep emotion that's felt during that week, I suppose. Um... And it's the final week of Christ's earthly ministry leading up to his crucifixion. On Sunday, Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. You remember that, right? And on Monday, Jesus overturned the tables in the temple and showed that the nation of Israel had refused God's command to put away their transgression. And on Tuesday, Jesus taught in the temple for quite a long time, it appears. And he told the people that the judgment of God was coming on the nation of Israel because of their rejection of both the law of God and their rejection of the promised Messiah who was there before them. And later that day, as Jesus and his disciples walked out of Jerusalem and went to the Mount of Olives, Jesus taught his disciples about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And he taught them about the age of the church. And he taught them about his glorious return and about the judgment that would follow. 
And now, the time for teaching is at an end. And now, we're rounding the sort of last corner, the final, the final turn under the home stretch. In chapter 26, we will see the events leading up to Jesus' arrest and his trial before the Jewish religious leaders. Chapter 27, we're going to see Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate and his crucifixion and his burial. And in chapter 28, we'll see his resurrection and the Great Commission. And Lord willing, we're going to accomplish all of this by the end of the month of April. You pray about that. In our text for this morning, though, we're going to find four points of application as we watch four different scenes unfold. And each of those scenes shows us something of the glory and the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus. Each one of those scenes shows us that Jesus is very purposefully headed to the cross. Even though evil men think they're getting the better of Jesus, we see that Jesus is in control. And with each of those scenes, we're going to find reason after reason after reason after reason to, pr to praise, to worship, to seek the Lord Jesus. So if you're ready, let's get ready for our four points and we'll jump right in. Point number one, praise Jesus for his willing sacrifice. Praise Jesus for his willing sacrifice. Uh, look again at verses one and two. It says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So, look at that line. Jesus finished all these sayings. Well, of course that means he completed the teaching that we've studied for a few months now on Tuesday of the Passion Week. But there's a bigger sense here, I think, that Jesus has finished all of his major discourses. There's not going to be, in Matthew's telling of this gospel, another major sermon coming from Jesus. We know what we need to know from Jesus. And Jesus told his disciples that the Passover celebration is going to arrive in two days. And then he tells them that he is going to be delivered up to be crucified. And this is at least the fourth time now in Matthew's gospel that Jesus has told the followers, his disciples, what's about to happen. He, he predicted his crucifixion in Matthew 16, 21, in 17, 22 to 23, and in 20, verses 18 and 19. Jesus knew he was going to Jerusalem. He knew he would be killed when he was there. He would be delivered into the hands of the Jewish religious establishment. But he also says he's going to be crucified, which means Jesus knew that the Roman government was going to be involved here because if the Jews had killed Jesus on their own as some sort of mob action, they would have stoned him. So Jesus knew he was going to Jerusalem. He knew he was going to be in the hands of the Jews. He knew the Romans were going to be involved in, in the, his execution. And Jesus knew he was going to rise from the grave. Now, before we go any further, though, I want you to stop and take a moment to praise Jesus. Because Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And he willingly went to Jerusalem fully aware 
of what the Jews would do, which is why I say the point is praise Jesus for his willing sacrifice. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, the Apostle Paul wrote, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John wrote, by this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. 1 John 3.16. Walking willingly to the cross is the bravest, the most intense, the most self-sacrificially loving thing that has ever been done. You ever watch a movie or read a book where a character willingly lays down his life for somebody else? Those are touching, aren't they? Do you realize that every one of those is just a tiny picture of what Jesus did? There is no greater love that could ever be shown than that which Jesus showed as he, with full understanding of the hell he faced, still marched steadily toward Calvary. So Christian, don't you let this pass you by. Praise Jesus for willingly going to the cross and enduring the horror of the wrath of God for you. Thank Jesus, worship Jesus, live for Jesus. Second point. We praised him for his willing sacrifice. Point two, praise Jesus for his glorious sovereignty. Praise Jesus for his glorious sovereignty. Verses three through five read, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him, But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So Matthew shifts our focus here away from Jesus and the disciples. And I don't know, we can't say for exact certainty whether this is in the timeline or whether we're stepping out of it here. But at some point, our view moves to a scene in the home of the high priest, a man named Caiaphas. And there's a gathering here of the Jewish religious leaders, the the aristocracy who wanted rid of Jesus. Now, Caiaphas filled the role of high priest in the nation of Israel from A.D. 18 through 36. He was the son-in-law of a man named Annas, who had been high priest from 8 through 15, He had several sons who became high priest after him, and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, eventually becomes high priest. Now, in some biblical passages, you're going to see that Annas is still being referred to by the Jews as the high priest, even while Caiaphas is high priest. And maybe, maybe that is similar to the way that you and I would still refer to a former president no longer in office as President, whatever his name is, right? You People still refer to President Bush, President Clinton. Well, It appears here that that could be the case. It also could be the case that Annas, the high priest, kind of played the role of the godfather. Behind the scenes, pulling the strings 
of the religious system, even if he was not the high priest in office. But it does also tell us something here that Annas is not high priest, but he's alive because the law of God said that a high priest would serve until he died. But, you know, the Roman government was not interested in allowing any individual to wield that level of consistent political and religious power. The fact that Caiaphas held the office of high priest for 18 years then tells you that Caiaphas was a skilled political maneuverer. This guy was a good schemer. Not a good man, but a good schemer. I suppose you all understand, don't you, that good politician does not always equal a good person? Well, John, in his gospel account, tells us a little bit more about Caiaphas and his motivation here. In John chapter 11, starting in verse 47, we read, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So Caiaphas was not about to let Jesus and Jesus' following endanger the nation. Not on my watch. Nor was Caiaphas willing to let Jesus grow in political power. And those motives, when you tie them together with the jealous resentment of the religious leaders, lead this group to look for an opportunity to arrest and to kill Jesus. Now, friends, this is not the first time, even in Matthew's gospel, that we see the religious leaders plotting Jesus' death. But you know what's different this time? This time their plan fits in with God's plan. Here's what's cool to me in this passage in verse 5. There we see that the leaders determine, yeah, we're going to arrest Jesus, we're going to kill Jesus. But they had one thing, one specific thing that they were not going to let happen. They would not arrest Jesus They would not have Jesus killed during the days of the feast because they knew that that might cause a riot among the people. Did you catch this? The one thing these big, strong, politically powerful men were not going to let happen is they were not going to arrest Jesus over this coming weekend. That, of course, is the very thing that God sees to it, that they do. Who do you think was really in charge here? And that leads us to what I would say is the second point, right? Praise Jesus for his glorious sovereignty. The priests plot, they sneak, they scheme, they think they've got some level of control over what they're doing. 
And of course, they are acting perfectly within their freedom. And yet these men are doing the very thing that the Lord had arranged for this to happen, that the Lord had arranged for them to do from before the beginning. These men are indeed accomplishing their own will and they, with their evil motivations, are still serving the ultimate plan of God. You guys know that God moves among the hearts of leaders, even evil leaders. Y'all know that can happen, right? Even when they think they're the ones in control. Proverbs 21.1 says to us, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And the Bible tells us that God had arranged the political leadership in Israel so that his plan would be accomplished. In Acts 4, 27 to 28, the Bible says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Why? To do whatever your gods, your hand, and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus himself makes it clear that he would choose exactly when he would lay down his life. In John 10, 17, and 18, Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. But those aren't just New Testament truths, are they? The Bible has always made it clear that God has authority over all kings, all rulers, all nations, no matter how much power they think they have. The Lord is above them all. I don't know that we could do better than Psalm 2 here. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens, remember what the next word is? He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So in the text that we just read, we see the priests gathering in the home of Caiaphas and they make their schemes. Here's what we know, friends. Jesus is not being taken by surprise. He has already told us he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to be crucified. Jesus is totally in control. Jesus is sovereign. And friends, that's a reason to praise Jesus. Yeah, the priests are acting freely, but nothing about their freedom is overriding the ultimate plan of God. From eternity past, God intended that Jesus would come and save his people, and no little band of political people is ever going to be able to thwart that plan. So we praise Jesus for his glorious sovereignty. Third point this morning. Still with me? Okay. Worship Jesus with your all. Point three, worship Jesus with your all. Six and seven, we'll just start there. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, 
a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now, again, we've been in the middle of, of Matthew telling us about the final week of Jesus' ministry, and now Matthew steps definitely out of the story timeline, and he gives us a flashback scene. You like it in movies when you get a flashback scene, right? Three days earlier. All we see, all we've seen take place in the past few chapters really was taking place on, most of the stuff was taking place on Tuesday, right? Rides in on the donkey on Sunday, turns over the tables on Monday and curses the fig tree. Tuesday comes in and teaches and teaches and teaches and teaches and walks out of the city. But what we're seeing about here, this takes place on the Saturday evening before Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So on Saturday night, before Jesus rides into Jerusalem publicly to declare himself to be the Messiah, Jesus was at that point apparently the guest of honor at a little dinner party. And, and the, the, the party was being held at, a home, at the home of a man named Simon the leper, which I would assume that the dinner invitations there would look interesting. Now, the only way that you have a meal at the home of a man named Simon the leper is if this is a man that Jesus had actually healed of a devastating disease. Well, according to John chapter 12, not only is Jesus at this meal, but Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead, was also an honored guest. And with Lazarus were his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And at some point during the meal, a woman, Matthew says, comes up to Jesus. John tells us that the woman was Lazarus' sister, Mary. And she carried an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. And alabaster is, is white, it's beautiful, it's this very delicate, lightly tinted, fine-grained gypsum. And, and this jar would have been, had you know, some room at the bottom, but it would have had a long Thin neck, most likely. And the whole point of that long, thin neck at the top of the jar was you could pour out just a little bit of the contents of the jar, but you could spare using a lot of it because this stuff was expensive. And Mary comes in, and she breaks the jar's neck off. She's not sparing any part of the contents of that jar. And she pours the perfume over the entire body of the Lord Jesus. You know, back then at meals, men would recline at a low table, right? They would lay on their side on a cushion by the table. And their feet would sort of stick out away from the table. So it was really easy for Mary to come up. She's above Jesus, and she can pour the whole content of this out over the body of Jesus from head to foot. And John, by the way, in his telling of the story, tells us that Mary even wiped Jesus' feet with her own hair as a touching act of surrender, submission, worship. Well, the ointment in that jar was very expensive. In John's account, we find out that the disciples believe that the jar is it contains nearly a year's wages worth of perfume. Did you hear me? A year's wages worth. 
So this act was incredibly giving a highly extravagant act of worship from Mary. This is, this is Mary taking what was likely her very most prized possession. It was a jar of perfume that she could have sold to provide herself with financial security if she ended up in a hard place. And she took this jar and she broke its neck off the top and she poured the whole contents out over Jesus. This woman sacrificed her very, very, very best as an act of love and kindness toward the Savior. Now, one would think that those who witnessed this, oh my goodness, how they must have been touched. They must have thought to themselves, what a loving, self-sacrificial thing this, this woman has done for our Lord. There probably wasn't a dry eye in the house. Let's see. Verses 8 and 9, And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Why in my head do I hear or something? Why this waste? What a question that is. Why? Why would you take something so valuable and pour it out all at once? Why just pour it on Jesus? Why not sell it and get the money? Why not put it to some sort of good use? Don't you hear that? And by the way, right now you're sitting here going, what a bunch of jerks those disciples were. Well, before you feel superior, how much different do you think you really would have been? Friends, what Mary did was not practical. It was not the budget-conscious choice. It was not in any way pragmatic. It was not a move that would grow the influence of the disciples. Right? This, this was not an event that was going to bring people to the church building next week. It was not a move that would help the needy. All it was was an act of worship. It was a moment's action that cost 300 days wages. And nobody's getting that money and nobody's getting that ointment back. Well, even as we know the disciples are wrong in being indignant, you guys are confident that they're wrong, right? Can we also be honest enough to see that we've got a little bit of that in us too? We're great with people sacrificing for the Lord. That is, so long as their sacrifice makes sense to us. But how do you feel when people give in a way that doesn't make sense to you? How do we feel when people pour out a part of their lives for the Lord that we would not be comfortable giving ourselves? Well, how does Jesus respond to the woman's gesture? I love this from 10 through 13. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. 
Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You notice Jesus is not bothered by the gift. He rebukes his disciples. He points out that what Mary has done is beautiful. There are going to be lots of opportunities in the days to come for the disciples to minister to the needy, and ministering to the needy is a good thing. But there's only one moment like the one in that house. There is a limited time when the Son of God would be physically on earth and walking to the cross. And this moment was sacred. This moment was unique. This moment was fleeting. It was passing rapidly. And Mary saw the moment, and she seized the opportunity, and she gave the Lord Jesus her very best. And Jesus speaks up in her defense, and he points out this perfuming of his body. It's appropriate. It was customary to, per, to perfume a person's body before it was buried. And Jesus knew he was going to his execution, and now you know what Jesus is going to do? He's going to go to his execution already anointed for burial. Jesus is making it clear, guys, very soon, before the fragrance of that perfume will even die away, He'll be dead and buried. You ever thought about that over the coming days of the Passion Week, that perfume of Mary's probably followed Jesus everywhere he went. Have you ever broken a perfume bottle before? Or a cologne bottle, men? Amen. I want that story. Um, How long does it take for the smell to go away if it's good stuff? Forever. Forever. If it's the cheap stuff, it goes away in 10 minutes. But if it's the good stuff, and this was the good stuff, this bottle was worth 300 days wages. I think the scent from that Saturday night anointing followed Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem and as he debated the Jews and as he ate the Last Supper and as he stood before the Jews and as he stood before Pontius Pilate. The perfuming of Jesus was a preparation, Jesus says, for his burial. And just like the other things we've seen happen, Every step in this chapter, every step is a step of preparation for the Savior to go to the cross. He's on his way. He knows where he's going. Maybe, maybe Mary is starting to understand it too. And if Mary did understand it, let me tell you, she was the first of Jesus' followers to get it. And again, we see the fact that God is in control, and we see the fact that God is accomplishing his perfect, perfect will. And then in verse 13, Jesus says that this act will be proclaimed along with the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus honors what this woman has done. Her willing sacrifice of this very valuable perfume, that is something that is never, ever going to be forgotten. Do you guys like it every once in a while when you like watch the History Channel or read a good history book and you hear the story of somebody you've never ever heard of before and you find out they were important? You know, I remember having a Bible study this you know a little while before we were doing the Book of Esther and we talked about the naval battle at Salamis. 
And I would bet that most of you, I would, I would bet that nine out of 10 of you have never heard of the island of Salamis and do not know that a naval battle was fought there that absolutely changed the course of human history. How many of you could name all 45 U.S. presidents right now? President's an important dude, right? How many of you just thought of Polk? Taft? Garfield? Those are names we don't even think of. Think about how many events in human history, beautiful events, glorious events, world-changing events. Think about how many have been forgotten. You ever thought about that? Guess what? Not this one. The Lord Jesus says this act of worship will never be forgotten. Now, besides realizing that Jesus Christ is fully in control as he marches to the cross, this event shows us that the Lord loves our genuine worship. And that's why the point for the section is worship Jesus with your all. You know, I don't know what you have to give, right? Maybe you're someone here who has a lot to give. Maybe you've got only a little bit to give. But the example to follow is give it all. Everything you've got, give to our Lord. Jesus is worth it, isn't he? Is Jesus worth your all? He's worthy of your life. There's no single part of yourself that you should hold back from him. The most wonderful thing that you could do, the only most wonderful thing you and I could do is pour out our very best, our very selves before the Lord we serve. So ask yourself, Christian, where do you hold back? Are you limited by the pragmatic and the practical? Do you give only what you think you can afford to honor the Lord? How much of yourself, how much of your time, how much of your income, how much of your heart do you hold back? Worship Jesus with your all. And now let's see one last scene one more step in Christ's sovereign march to the cross. It's point number four. The point's going to be follow Jesus for Jesus. Follow Jesus for Jesus. Look at the scene in 14 to 16. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Well, if you were to read the account of the anointing of Jesus in John chapter 12, you'd find out that though all of the disciples were grumbling about the waste of the perfume, Judas Iscariot was the worst of the bunch. Judas was one of the 12, and he was fond of money. He liked to steal from the funds that were given to Jesus, and he was not at all fond of the idea of this potential gain being poured out over the Savior's body. 
So sometime after that meal on Saturday night, Judas slipped off and he met with the chief priests. Maybe, maybe Judas managed to show up around the time these wicked men were plotting to arrest and kill Jesus in verses 3 through 5. Well, just as these evil men were looking for an opportunity to find Jesus in a non-public setting, here comes one of his disciples. And Judas asks a pretty interesting question. What will you give me? Judas wants a payoff for betraying Jesus to the Jews. He's after cash. And the Jews settle with Judas on the price of 30 pieces of silver. In Zechariah, that amount is mentioned as Zechariah's wages in chapter 11, 12 and 13, 11 verses 12 through 13. 30 pieces of silver in Exodus 21, verse 32 is the price of a slave. And if the coins were standard temple shekels, each silver coin the value of four denarii, then this was approximately 120 days wages. So for around 40% of one year's salary, Judas agreed to betray the Lord Jesus to his death. And from that moment forward, Judas begins looking for a chance to betray Jesus because the key here is he wants to find a place where the Jews can catch Jesus without the crowds around. They want to do this quiet-like. They need somebody near Jesus to lead them to Jesus in an out-of-the-way location. And who better to do this job than one of Jesus' dearest friends? Now, why would Judas have done this? We don't really know for sure. We know Judas wanted money, but was that all? Perhaps Judas wanted more from following Jesus than Judas received. Perhaps Judas wanted Jesus to become the big conquering military leader. Maybe Judas thought that, man, if I get in on the ground floor with Jesus, man, I'm going to be rich and powerful when he takes his throne. But man, Judas did not get what he wanted, did he? Think about a year before this, right? John chapter 6. Jesus is out in the desert, wilderness place, side of the lake, preaching to a crowd of 5,000 men, not counting women and children. What do you think Judas thought then? Oh, baby, here it comes. Here they are. 5,000 men, not counting women. 15,000 people spread out in front of him. The T-Mobile Center full of people. And then, the next day, Jesus starts talking about his body and his blood like their food, and it drives the crowds away. Jesus had popularity. He had the people in the palm of his hand, but he just couldn't help but preach offensive things. Now it's just a few days ago, Jesus lets some woman dump out a year's wages worth of perfume on him. And there was no reason for all that in Judas's mind. It was a waste. It was a missed opportunity. And with it, Jesus keeps talking about dying. And maybe, just maybe, Judas has just now realized that what he wants from Jesus is not coming to him. Judas wanted something other than Jesus from Jesus, and it was not to be. 
And that's where I think we grab our final point, follow Jesus for Jesus. There is no value, friends, in coming to Jesus if you want to get something other than Jesus. Jesus did not promise you health. He did not promise you prosperity. He did not promise you an easy life. Jesus did not promise you happy children. Jesus did not promise you a blissful marriage. Jesus says, if you love him, the world's going to hate you. He promises you persecution. But what is it to have Jesus? To have Jesus as your Savior is to have the forgiveness of God for your sins. To have Jesus as your Savior is to be adopted into the family of God. To have Jesus as your Savior is to be granted the joy of seeing and savoring and loving and being filled by the glory of God forever. These are the things God created you for. These are what will give your souls their only genuine satisfaction. These are worth more than anything else you could ever get. So if you've never come to Jesus for salvation, I do urge you to do so. Believe Jesus died and rose from the grave to pay for your sins. Believe that he can and will forgive everyone who comes to him in faith and repentance. Entrust your very soul to Jesus. Surrender your life to Jesus. Ask Jesus for forgiveness and begin to learn that the highest joy that can be found is found as we seek not a bunch of extra things from Jesus, but as we get to know Jesus himself. Well, in our passage today, we've seen four scenes of God preparing the way for Jesus to go to the cross. Jesus said that's his goal, verses 1 and 2. The priests plotted against Jesus, and they unknowingly accomplished God's will in verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5. Mary anointed Jesus for burial in verses 6 through 13. And Judas took the bribe that would set the stage for what comes next in 14 to 16. And you know what we learn in all this? God is in control. Jesus is fully aware of where he's going. He knows where, he knows why, he knows when, he knows how. So praise Jesus for his willing sacrifice. And praise Jesus that he is gloriously sovereign. And worship Jesus because of this stuff with your all, with everything you've got. Don't hold back any part of your life. And follow Jesus for Jesus. If you've never received Jesus' forgiveness, Turn from your sins. Cry out to Jesus in faith to find life. And you'll find life and hope and genuine soul-satisfying joy forever. Let's bow together and let's pray. Lord God, we say thank you again for the Lord Jesus, for who he is, for what he's done. And as we work together now to honor you through song, as we respond to the amazing glory of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, what we would ask you for, God, is to do the work in our hearts that needs to be done so that we might magnify you best. Help us to be people who give our all and who worship Jesus and who truly, truly magnify you. 
Lord Jesus, be glorified, be magnified. Save souls and help us honor you rightly. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.